people, tell us, when you were at school, what did you think you were going to do? Oh, be an engineer. Be an engineer, quite definitely. Yes, quite definitely. And that is why you went into marine engineering? I left school at the age of 16 and became uh, an apprentice at Great Engineering Works in London at a salary of four shillings a week. Mm -hmm. And the last ship built on the Thames by them was the Black Prince, a cruiser with reciprocating engines. And then they became so slack that I transferred my apprenticeship to John Samuel White's at Cowes, where I served for the rest of the time. And it was in the drawing office there when a man who had been engaged in the design of the first rigid airship for the Admiralty, having forecast that she would break, as indeed she did on being taken out of the shed, uh, had to leave and answered the first advertisement he could see for a diesel engine draftsman and came down to John Samuel Wrights and worked on the drawing board next to me. And we were both very keen on short, long-distance running. We used to change our clothes, take the train out to one end of the Isle of Wight and then run back again, you see, as an evening's hobby. And in 1913, the Admiralty were certain that war was coming, and so they came to Vickers and said, look here, we must have a naval scout. Remember, airplanes were in their infancy mm, yeah. in those days, mm. and deck landing was unthought of, I think. Uh, will you build us another rigid airship? So the directors of Vickers looked round and said, where is that bright young man who said the Mayfly was going to break? And they discovered him at Cowes, offered him the job of chief of a new department to work in London under Sir Trevor Dawson, the chairman, and as we said goodbye, I said, old oh, chap, if you see a job for me, uh, do let me know. And six months later, I got a letter offering me the post of his assistant chief designer, as it would be called now. And we worked in two tiny little rooms in Victoria Street, so secret that there were green curtains nailed over the windows so that nobody could see in or out. And there wasn't much light either. And there we started designing the old R9. Now, when the war did break out, Churchill was first Lord, Fisher was first Sea Lord. And Churchill decided that the war couldn't possibly last more than four months. You'll find that statement in the first volume of Harold Macmillan's Reminiscences. Mm. Nobody thought it could. Mm. And so Churchill said, stop this airship. Mm. 
you'll never get it finished in time to be the slightest use and the other people can be more usefully employed. So Pratt and I shot off and enlisted in the artist's rifles, the same regiment as Harold Macmillan enlisted in. And curiously enough, when he conferred upon me an honorary doctorate at Oxford or Cambridge, damn it. <laughs> Which is he Chancellor of? Um, Cambridge. 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 Mm-hmm. Of Cambridge. As he shook hands, he said, How nice it is to meet somebody from the same old regiment. <laughs> well, what an extraordinary memory, memory that mm-hmm. man must yes. have. Well, it wasn't after we, I'd been in the army for nine months. Somebody happened to notice that the war wasn't over, and the Navy were raving. The Zeppelins were just doing what they liked with them in the North Sea. Yes. And so they said, where are those two bright young men who were designing this old airship? Mm. And they located us in the artist's rifles, and they gave me a commission in the Royal Naval Air Service, and sent me up to Barrow in Furness, where the ship was being built, to finish her off, while Pratt went somewhere else, I don't know where. And it didn't take Vickers very long to find out that the gold-braided young gentleman were wandering about their shops, couldn't do the slightest good, in fact upset people. So the Admiralty said, you are hereby demobbed, get back and do the job. So by 1916, I was in civilian life again. And Pratt came along and he acted as general manager and I as chief designer and we produced nine, 23, 24, 25, 26. Then I designed entirely on my own, breaking away from the Zeppelin tradition, the R80. And then the great slump came, and Vickers said, sorry, but we must shut the asset department altogether. And everybody received a year's salary except myself and Pratt, whom they found for whom they found another job. He was a barrow man anyhow. And Sir Charles Craven said, "Look here, we will give you two hundred and fifty pounds a year, which represented." quite a a nice little sum, although it was only about a quarter of my salary, um, on the condition that you don't join any other aircraft firm. And I said, that is grand. I want to go to London University to get a degree. I'd already taken intern by a correspondence course. So I took a bed-sitting room in London, and took more correspondence courses. I took inter in four weeks, 
and followed it with finals five months later. A shocking thing to do, but you were allowed to... Water. Water, you see. <laughs> I then took a job. I, I thought, I'm, I won't be an engineer any longer. I'm sick of it. I've been let down three times running, and I'm going to become a salesman. Salesmen make all the money. Now, I knew a bit of French and German from my school days, so I took a job as senior mathematical master at a school in Switzerland, near Montreux, near Chillon Castle, and taught mathematics. And came home at Christmas to see a young lady with whom I had fallen in love, called on Craven in the meantime. He said, how are you getting on? I said, oh, I'm losing money. My salary as a schoolmaster does not pay my expenses for B.A. de Sport as I have to accompany all these boys, they were all senior boys, going into the diplomatic service or things of that sort, up to the skiing grounds. Oh, he said, I didn't know you wanted a job. What would you like to do? I said, I want to become a salesman. All right, he said, I will give you a post at 650 a year with Herr Lutebacher. And I thought, oh my God, now I am going to be found out. <laughs> However, they pushed me down in the basement. I say, is this the sort of thing you want? Oh, fine, yeah, fine. Yes, this is great. Pushed me down in the basement with 20 or 30 other riotous young fellows. In six months, I booked one order for 29 pounds worth of steel rails for Czechoslovakia. And at that time, Commander Burney, just died recently, yeah. who later became Sir Deniston Burney, had thought up his great imperial uh, communications scheme. And of course, remember, this is about 21, we're at now, 1921. The aeroplane experts were giving their limit of economic range, carrying a payload of not exceeding at about a thousand miles. Mm -hmm. Do you remember? Yeah. Correct. And so the airship, which could do five, six, or seven thousand miles non-stop, mm -hmm. and we got up to speeds of between 60 and 70 miles an hour by that time, uh, was the obvious vehicle for imperial communications, as the word then, it's a dirty word now, I know, but uh, it was a proper word in those days. And he came to Vickers and said, look here, uh, he'd already made a fortune of £250,000 out of Vickers um, for, by a contract for his um, paraphrase. Mm -hmm. And so they thought a great deal of him, 
and they took the job on and the, the directors of Vickers said where are those bright young men who were building airships in the war and they discovered me in the basement and Pratt wouldn't come so Bernie made me chief engineer of what was called by a horrible name of the Airship Guarantee Company and we set about building the R100, buying up a derelict shed at Howden in Yorkshire. And that is how I returned to the aircraft industry. I got to know Jack Rennie. Do you remember Rennie? Very well, very well, yes. From Blackburn. Uh, and he took me over Blackburn's works. And without... Um, wishing to be derogatory to Blackburns, I did realize when I saw their construction that if a man brought to heavier than aircraft the structural techniques which were forced upon him by the airship, he could revolutionize aircraft performance. Because remember this, if your airship is too heavy, it doesn't go up. Right. If your airplane is too heavy, you write to the engine makers and say, fuel yeah, more, more horses, mm. and you write to the operator and you say, another half a mile to take off, mm. and you have still built a successful machine. Mm. So, before I, before out a hundred flew, I had already been down here, had talked to Sir Robert McLean, now dead, who was one of the three men in my life that I have met who could appreciate what a job would, could be turned into without his having any personal knowledge of it. The other two men, because they are yeah. interesting to have on record, are Sir Henry Tizard mm -hmm. and Sir Thomas Merton, still happily alive. He was chairman of the Tribunal of Scientific Advisors to Oliver Littleton mm -hmm. in the last war. Yeah. And one interesting... I say, I am going on. Can you carry on? This is you lovely. You can cut all these side remarks out. One interesting point does emerge. On the 26th of February, 1943, Sir Charles Craven, then back from working with Beaver Brook in the Ministry of Aircraft Production, back at Vickers as chairman, sent for me kept me standing like a schoolboy in front of his desk and said, Wallace, the ministry are complaining that you're making a nuisance of yourself over this dam-busting business. Stop it. You're not to do any more. So I said, well, Sir Charles, if that's the case, then perhaps you'd like me to hand in my resignation. And he sprang to his feet and lost his temper and he banged on the desk saying, Mutiny! 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 Yeah. He was an ex-naval officer. 
Yes, quite. <laughs> I staggered out of the room, didn't know whether I'd resigned or not, went home. Two days later, he and I were summoned to a meeting with Sir Wilfred Freeman's uh -huh. chief of staff, and were given orders that this thing was to go ahead and be done by the middle of May. Now this was the 28th of February, 1943. Mm -hmm. Would you believe it? Mm -hmm. And in six weeks, my staff, the people who worked with me at Weybridge, designed the gear, the bomb, and um, the length was modified. Uh -huh. Who was their chief designer? Chadwick. Chadwick, yes. Roy Chadwick Roy came Chadwick. down here, modified the Bombay to uh -huh. take it, uh -huh. and Gibson formed his squadron. And in those six weeks, yeah. that great job was prepared. And Gibson, an absolute hero, if ever there was one. Yeah. You can see two pictures up on the walls there. And look at that one, isn't that the beauty? Oh, wonderful. Wonderful, I haven't seen it. Taken by a German. Yes. And three dams were bust in the one night, though everybody only talks about the one. They were the Myrne, the Ada, and the Sorpe, which was also exhausted, though not so spectacularly, because being an earth dam with these great walls of earth, mm. the water trickled through more slowly. Well, it wasn't long before Sir Wilfred Freeman sent for me and said, Wallace, we don't think now the dams have been bust that you are quite as mad as we did when you put up your idea for a ten-ton bomb in 1940. How soon could you let me have one? <laughs> so I said, oh, July, August, September, October, November, um, shall we say by Christmas, Sir Wilfred, if I have all the labour I want in Sheffield to cast the casings, because we'd already trifled with the design, you know. There's one standing outside. Yes, yes. He said, right, go and see your chairman, Sir Charles Craven, and I'll ring him up and tell him what we want. And as I stepped over the threshold of Craven's room in Broadway, Westminster, as it then was, he shouted out at me, What the hell do you want the services of 20,000 men in Sheffield for? So I explained to him, but of course he and Wilfred Freeman were buddies, so it was all right, it all went through. And the thing did go through, and Leonard Cheshire took command of 617 Squadron, and they... Oh, by the way, 
I've missed one of the most interesting points. Freeman handed to me a prisoner of war's report on the Penimunde rocket. Yeah. And apparently these were going to be launched from great standing grounds right. made of about 30 feet of concrete. Mm. And they wanted my 10-ton bomb to bust these up, you see. Well, we had, uh, Roy Chadwick and I had a Dutch auction. Uh, at first he said 10,000 pounds was about the most he'd take, and I worked him up to 20,000. And then finally I said, now what about making it around 10 tons, you see? And he did, he ordered his undercarriage, and he strengthened up his Bombay and so on. We owe a lot to Roy Chadwick. Yes, yeah. And he never, as far as I know, had any recognition for it. Anyhow, it went, and in the POW's report was a description of this rocket. And he happened to mention that in the jet, in the actual jet itself, there were a number of carbon, compressed carbon control vanes. Now, I, having built airships, knew a good deal about the pitching moment developed by a body flying at incidence. So, I thought, what the blazes do we put the wings in front of an airplane for? Because if these carbon vanes are used to turn the jet downwards, I can use the pitching moment of the body to counteract the negative pitching moment of the jet, and the thing will fly horizontally. And we actually put a model in our wind tunnel and put all the compressed air in the works into the body as a jet, and the thing was as stable as anything. And there is the genesis of the swept-back variable geometry aircraft. That was in 1943. Had no time to do anything about it until I was asked to form this research department when I took all the best men, and you see one of them in front of you, uh, from the production side who joined me and we proceeded to get on with the swallow and various things like that, most interesting. So there is a, a brief resume of how I happened, being a marine engineer, happened to come into the aircraft industry. Yes. So you can understand my interest in submarines, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Now, is that enough for you? I think that's grand. Well, <clears throat> could you tell us a few words about geodetic construction in the Wellington? Oh, yes. Because that um, was a very marked change. It was a marked change, and it was a very marvelous change, too, for its time. Of course, yes. it's, to a certain extent, quite out of date now. That started in this way. You will know that when you fill an ordinary balloon with hydrogen, 
and cover it with a net and hang a weight down below, it takes up a pear shape. If you do anything but turn into a perfect sphere for you. And the difficulty in designing rigid airships is to get a circular polygonal frame to contain a gas bag which shall fill that space uh, being in cross-section a perfect circle. Now the Germans solved the problem simply by stringing a mesh of wires from one longitudinal girder to another. But the British airworthy authorities, Professor Pippard and late Professor Sir Leonard Bairstow, insisted on much more accurate calculations. You will understand that as the bag rose and fell, pressing against these wires, there was a side load put on these longitudinal girders, which put a bending moment into what might be a strut, yeah. which is always uh, a, a bit muzzy Bad as thing. far as calculations are concerned. And so both the Cardingtonians and I attempted to solve this problem without attaching our wires to the longitudinal girders so that the, what the calculations made could be regarded as reasonably accurate. And mark you, the calculations for one transverse frame took two men three months before they got a final solution. And of course with a computer we could now do the thing in about three minutes, but so time changes. Well, I got the idea of running wires from one transverse frame to another, loaded in such a way that they took up a perfect circular arc. And you as engineers will know that if a wire is loaded radially, with a uniform load per unit of length, it does deflect into a circle. So I had to make these wires diverge as they approached the bottom of the bag, so that their loading in pounds per foot run of each wire, due to the gas bag pressure, was equal at all stages. And when you come to try to do that in uh, a, um, an ellipsoid, which was the forepart of the body was, where the gas bag is uh, a frustum of an ellipse, of an ellipsoid, the mathematics proved to be beyond me as to how my wire should be run. But I happened to have a friend who knew the late Professor L.N.G. Philon, who was then Professor of Mechanical or Civil Engineering at University College London. Yes. And I went to him with my problem, and he said, 
uh, he would work on it and after a few days he came along and said look here this is each of your wires must be a geodesic in the surface and here are the mathematics and uh, they are some mathematics I can tell you yeah. oh, good man father very good man yeah. Uh, and so we designed all this gas bag wiring and we could adjust our gas bags so that we didn't miss a single cubic foot of space mm. and the thing, whole thing was perfect mm. and when I came to Vickers and saw the type of wooden aircraft which they were yeah. turning out which had a square fuselage made of four Box. tubes mm -hmm. with struts and wire bracing and then a false woodwork mm. to turn it Bearing. into a beautiful streamlined yeah. shape. Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, my goodness, all I've got to do is to run members mm. in geodesics over mm. this surface and I shall have the most beautiful structure you ever saw. Mm. And it was Sir Robert McLean who backed me. The yes. shop said, this is absolutely ridiculous, oh, no, no, no. absolutely impossible. How can we make these curved things? Uh, it's not a production job at all. But Trevor Westbrook and I got out the production jigs and tools and a chap in these tool shop made a machine for rolling the channels yeah. to the required curvatures mm. and the whole thing went through and was a terrific success the first machine we built on these lines was the wells well, there yeah. and Pearson did all the aerodynamics mm. I did all the structure yeah. and she got the world's long-range long record which she held for 11 years yes, I yes, think yes. But remember, those were the days of slow speed and fabric covering. Yes. All we had to do was to run wooden battens over the geodesics um, and stretch the on. And dope fabric on, and there mm. you were. Yeah. But directly metal skinning came in, geodesics went out. Well, it was so easy to repair in wartime. That it was one of the marvelous. wonderful things about it. Yeah. And of course, they were frightfully redundant. Yes. yes. Uh, and so you could shoot away a large number yeah. of the members and still come so home. Yeah. Had you ever heard this word fail safe at that time? No. Because this was no. the first practical application. It was a fail safe machine, yes. absolutely. Yes. Well, fail safe yes. didn't cover come until, until 50, about 50. 50. No. But actually, here was the perfect system yeah. already invented. Yeah. Yes. But yes. It, it, would, it would have gone out of fashion oh, yes. already That's by that time. Yeah. Yes. Though the Wellington remained in service until, yes. as a trainer, until 53 or 54. Yes. The Viking airliner started off as a, a converted Wellington. Yes. A converted Wellington with a skin on it to make people feel happy. Yes. Mm. Yes, they were great days. Yeah. And McLean backed me. It it resulted in the works manager. <laughs> that's that's rather yes. a funny story. 
we were building a test fuselage for the Wellesley to be tested at Farnborough, where it went up to ten times the required load. Yes. Eleven to one. Eleven was Eleven, it? yes. You remember it? Mm. I've got the figures someplace. Good heavens. Yes, eleven to one, I think. Eleven to one. Mm. It astonished even me. Yes. But when taking it out of the construction jig at night, one evening on overtime, the men handling it happened to drop one end. And Archie Knight, who was then the works manager, who estimated the amount of work he had done in a day by the number of miles he had walked. He used to keep a uh, pedometer pedometer in his pocket and say, I've walked 26 Mm. miles today, by God I've had a day. (laughs) Um, He shouted out at the men, that's right, drop the bloody thing, it's cost a million pounds already. (laughs) And it so happened that Sir Robert McLean, who was backing me, was standing in the doorway behind Knight. And he went up to Knight and he said, You're sacked. I'm not going to have this sort of thing. That's what happened. Mm. Muller, who was superintendent, then handed in his resignation, which was accepted. And Trevor Westbrook came Came up from Southampton. Yes, I had to gloss over that when I wrote this book about And reverting to what you said, Naylor, regarding the fail-safe, Archie Knight, very loyally, came back during the war and created a repair department here. And there was no one more enthusiastic on the merits of the Wellington as a, an easily reparable machine. Yeah. He said it was the finest machine he'd ever come across. And it was in those days very safe for this reason. For one reason, if it were hit by a shell which went off inside the fuselage, all you did was blow off a bit of fabric. fabric. Mm-hmm. With a stressed yeah. skin, you blew the machine to pieces, and she was done for. And so the good old Wellington would come back, perhaps with a half fabric off. Yeah. Uh, well, wonderful. Interesting. would like to add a few words about, not about the swallow in particular, but about the American taking up your idea of these... Uh, oh, lovely. Just a few words about that. Yeah, Would you? Uh, we don't want to tire you too much. No, you're not tiring me. Um, there's a bit of history attached to that. Uh, for a reason, now well understood by me, uh, which was a, a red tape reason, the British, the government, the Ministry of... Uh, what do you call it now? I, uh, Ministry of Technology, no? Ministry of Technology. Yes, Ministry of Air Ministry No, it wasn't. There was Ministry of Aviation. Ministry of Aviation. Said they would withdraw all financial support. 
The reason being, a very interesting one, here comes in the red tape, Ministry of Aviation couldn't give an order for a manned aircraft unless it were in response to a requirement from the air staff. And when they went to the air staff and said, will you please specify a variable geometry aircraft, the air staff said, good God, no, that's not our business. What we do is say what our performance is and leave you to supply the machine. And the Ministry of Aviation said, oh no, we can't uh, take it that way, we're not going to take the risk of supplying you with a variable. Therefore, the thing fell to the ground. So, Craven sent for me and said, look here, the Americans have got a scheme which they call MWDP, Mutual Weapons Development Program, by which they will give a poverty-stricken country like England a grant to develop an invention which they think will be of use to the NATO countries. Go over to Paris and tell them about your invention and ask if they will give a grant. So I went to Paris and saw any number of generals and people and they came over here and it so happened that John Stack, the deputy director of the Langley Field Research Station, was among them. And with characteristic American bonhomie, he slapped me on the back after having heard what we'd done and said, I tell you what, Wally, you bring your team over to us at Langley Field and tell us all about it. <laughs> so, Jeff was one of them. Yes. We flew out, five, six of us, yeah. and we spent a week lecturing and telling them nearly all about it, but not quite. And at the end, though they didn't say so in so many words, it could be put this way. Their reaction was that this was much too good an invention to be developed in poor old England. Mm. They would take it on and do it in America. No ground. And every time I look at the F-111 I laugh like a drain, drain. <laughs> because they've put a tail on the thing. Yes. Have you seen my film? Yes. yes. You don't want a tail mm-hmm. if you know how to do that. But they, they apparently didn't find out. Mm-hmm. Well, there you are. That's the history That's of that. Thank you. <clears throat> but as far as I'm concerned, it is out of date entirely. Because my great ambition now, and you must have some stirring force within you to keep you going, is to design a passenger aircraft which will fly to Australia non-stop. You know, very few people uh, realize that were it not for the goodwill of a number of countries, 
We couldn't reach Australia by air at all. There is Bartholomew's latest map of the world in which the areas of all these great continents have their right proportions. And he has put on, not I, what he calls the principal air routes of the world. And you will see that all of them go either over or close to England. We yes. could be the air center of the whole world. And what is the truth? When you pull a page out of a catalog of BOAC, yes. what you see is that. Yes. That you have to put down three or four times to get to Australia. And if some hostile nation were to say, not today, we couldn't get there. And I'm pretty certain we couldn't go west about either. Remember the Suez Canal. Yeah, yeah. So, if you remember your range formula, that range depends upon specific impulse of the engine, which is already pretty well as high as it ever will get, multiplied by the logarithmic value of the ratio of the weight at takeoff to the weight at landing, assuming that the difference represents fuel and oil burnt, multiplied by the L over D ratio for the whole machine, multiplied by the velocity at which you fly, you will find that you've got to raise L over D to something like 10 and to fly with a velocity of something like Mach 7. And then you will get from London to Melbourne non-stop carrying a 10 to 15 percent payload. Now the problem is, the one problem you've got to work on is the L over D. And nobody seems to have realized that an ogival wedge, by which I mean a fuselage which is a long parallel body in plan, but looks nice and streamlined in elevation, an ogival wedge has about one over two and a half times the drag when exerting lift of a circular body exerting the same lift. Or to put it the other way around, the circular fuselage would have two and a half times the drag of the ogival wedge if you ask it to develop the same lift. And there's your L over D fraction, you see. Well, it's very interesting. You say, why did nobody think of this before? And uh, the answer really is that anybody can pressurize a circular cylinder, but only a man with a considerable experience of structural, light structural engineering will dare to pressurize internally yeah. 
a rectangular structure. And you can imagine how delighted I was when I came across this book, which was written by a German and, and mm. with apologies, very badly translated by an American, in which he gives the ratio of twice. Mm. And of course the mathematics are a bit fuzzy because you're dealing with viscosity, mm. which always introduces troubles in all your calculations. <laughs> But there, there, somebody else has hit on it. But thank God nobody, nobody can build that structure except a man who has been brought up in the unforgiving world of airship construction. <laughs> and I would remind you of the 101. Yeah. Yeah. Now oh. isn't that fascinating? It is, it is fascinating. And I am now able to build a structure like that, which is lighter than the circular structure used in the VC-10, pressurized internally. And it will accommodate the new ISO, International Standards Organization, mm. container, mm. 8 feet square yeah. by 10, 20, 30 or 40 yeah. feet long. Mm. In which all British exports, which okay. are relatively small and can be mm. packed into these mm. containers, got have got to go. Mm. And when you put, try to put those things into a circular thing with a long pointed nose exactly. like the Concorde, how are you going to get them in? No. You can't. But I can put them into a rectangular fuselage, I just make it open its mouth like yeah. that and it swallows containers mm. or it swallows passengers mm. and it's, it's coming mm. yeah. unless my dear boy you and I unless Anno Domino Anno Domino makes Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it is coming yeah. Yeah. well there you are well I think that's a cheerful note to end on it is thank <laughs> you so much not a bit and I Oh, blimey, what a, what a piece of self-revelation. No, well, this is exactly what we want. Mm. No question For about it. For heaven's sake, Just don't think I'm conceited about it. Know. It's pure chance, the whole blessed thing. Yeah. All life has got a lot of chance in it. All chance. And everything you are and do, you owe to the men that you have worked with and for. Who and have the people who picked you up. 